0: My name is Charles Lewington. I'm the Executive Chairman of Hanover Communications. My leadership lesson is always keep the customer front and center, and when you manage a team, it's okay to make mistakes.
1: Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, MT's editor. On today's episode, we interview Charles Lewington, John Major's former press secretary who founded and recently sold the PR agency, Hanover Communications, We explore the unintended consequences of strong cultures and look at why we shouldn't romanticise entrepreneurship. That's all on the Leadership Lessons agenda. With me to discuss these topics is fellow MT journalist Antonia garrett Peel. First up is our piece by Eddie Gaskell on the dark side of having strong cultures. Ever since Peter Drucker famously remarked that culture eats strategy for breakfast, there has been a considerable emphasis within organisations on developing their internal culture. For instance, Deloitte's Human Capital Trends reports regularly tout the benefits of investing in culture, and its 2021 edition cited organisational culture as the single most likely thing to transform the workplace. Other studies have cited culture as underpinning everything from remote working to an organization's sustainability ambitions. Now, advocates of developing a strong culture usually portray it as an unalloyed benefit with no possible downsides. But of course, that isn't the case. For instance, it's well established that strong cultures can easily facilitate a kind of groupthink, whereby any dissenting voices or values are either discounted or simply not recruited for in the first place. Now, new research from Rutgers University highlights that a strong organisational culture can blind managers to inequality. This is because managers in such organisations often identify so strongly with their organisation that they refuse to accept the notion that inequality could possibly exist. Now, interestingly, they found that the higher up a manager is in their corporate hierarchy, the more likely they are to hold the organization in extremely high esteem. In other words, they have drunk the Kool-Aid. A quote from the research says, senior managers' perception of their organizational ethics is more positive than lower level employees. This is because among highly identified individuals, admitting that their organization contains inequity would reflect negatively on the organization and therefore reflect negatively on one's self-identity. And this managerial blindness matters, say the researchers, because getting buy-in from managers is crucial if diversity, equity and inclusion efforts are to succeed. Now, they give an example of this, which is Mark Benioff, who's the chief exec of Salesforce, who, while championing the importance of diversity in the business community more broadly, famously denied the existence of inequality at Salesforce due to its exceptional culture. And he only changed his mind after he met with two female executives who sort of persuaded him that inequality was a tangible problem through showing him, kind of, I guess, examples. Um, and after the meeting, he agreed to conduct an audit into pay inequality, the first of which resulted in $3 million being spent on improving matters, with a further $3 million spent the next year.
2: I found the argument in this piece really interesting. I guess it suggests that there's a fine line between identifying with your company and identifying with it too much. Because you have to sort of identify with your organisation to a certain extent, right, in order to care about what you're doing and its sort of contribution to something bigger. I guess unless you're seeing everything entirely through the prism of kind of your own career and its aims. On the other hand, I've had researchers flagged me some of the other dangers of identifying too strongly with your business. So for example, one professor told me that specifically in relation to founders and topic X, that if you identify too much with your company and your identity becomes too closely intertwined, then that kind of feeds the tendency for competition to become personal and sort of stokes rivalries up at the top. So it's an interesting point that seems to have wider relevance. Mm, I think that's really interesting. I've I've
1: always thought that in the context of a founder of their own business might be blind to its foibles because they've created it themselves and they, they don't want to admit that they've done anything wrong. But it's interesting that People just worker bees moving up the corporate ladder also have that same blindness to it.
2: Yeah, and how it sort of spirals the further up you go.
1: Mm. In the article, it says there are three ways that people can overcome that problem. And the first is to encourage managers to look for examples of unfairness within their own teams. And this helps them realize these issues exist in their workplace, counteracting the belief that it's not a problem for them. A second point is instead of saying that managers who resist diversity efforts have a personal flaw, Focus on the fact that they feel very positively towards the company and, you know, that can make discussions about diversity more productive. And then finally, they said, make sure you're giving managers ways to learn about inequality in their teams, which could involve using anonymous surveys. I'm sure many of our listeners will use those HR tools um, and summaries of data like charts that show things like pay differences or opportunities for growth and how included people feel. And this can help leaders make better decisions about diversity. I think giving leaders yeah. facts about the situation yeah. means it's much less reliant on a leader's subjective opinion about a situation. The next article we wanted to discuss was Paul Simpson's interview of the serial entrepreneur and Habu CEO, Martin Bish, who gave a really candid account of what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And he made three particularly interesting points. The first is that we need to resist romanticizing being an entrepreneur. And he says, there's a tendency to focus on the glamorous things the brand or the easy things like creating a lovely logo. Although I should interject here. I'm sure that making a logo is not that easy. (laughs) I'm sure you've got most of the, uh, advertising world would say slightly differently, but focusing on those things rather than focusing on the things that he claims really matter, he says, there's nothing romantic about spreadsheets or for that matter, the fluctuating cost of capital. If you are thinking of launching your own business, he says, you should ask yourself, what do I want out of this? Is it fame, wealth, status, or something else? And if you get it, will you be satisfied? In reality, he says most people become entrepreneurs for one reason only. They will work 16 hours a day, endure constant stress and probably neglect their own families, primarily for the benefit of not being told what to do. I think that's something we could probably all recognize there. So I think that's kind of a really interesting point. And he he was also making just, I guess, a general point about how the UK in particular needs to change the perceptions of what it means to be an entrepreneur. And interestingly, he found that as he got older, when he walked into a meeting with a new VC, he'd often go into that room and find a 20 something associate looking at him as if to say, well, if this guy was going to make any money, he would have done it by now. So I think it's quite interesting to unpick what we expect an entrepreneur to look like and and act like, and also what we think being an entrepreneur is actually about. So I think it was a really fascinating interview from that perspective. Another point he made was that being an entrepreneur is effectively a matter of solving problems. But one of the biggest mistakes he sees people make is that they often try to solve problems doing what they are good at rather than what is needed to fix the problem. And he says when he started out with his background as a games writer and software engineer, If his company faced a problem, then he automatically assumed the solution was to develop a new feature. And he says it took me the best part of 10 years before I realized that a lot of the time the answer was something completely different, like running a better marketing campaign or focusing on user acquisition.
2: Yeah, this reminds me of a conversation that I had about Boomerang CEOs with Adrian Stallum, who's the chief change officer at Sullivan and Stanley. And he argued that one of the perils of returning chief execs is that they rely too much on their past experiences and intuition, which he defines as a belief system that you don't challenge. And essentially what his argument boiled down to is that you have to be agile with your thinking. Because something worked once doesn't mean that it'll work again. And because it was suited to one set of circumstances doesn't mean it will be another. And I guess expertise is almost a third one that you could kind of add on top of those two. Because you can see how it could be tempting to look for solutions within your existing or strongest skill set, but also how that could be to your detriment. And maybe this is a part of when an
1: entrepreneur is founding a business, it is very much in their own image, I guess, but having the maturity to realise that you need lots of different skills in the room and that sometimes it may not be you leading the charge on something and you have to allow somebody else to deal with the problem more effectively. So I think that's probably a a big learning journey that I'm sure lots of, you know, founders and entrepreneurs go through. The third point he makes was that he was very critical of the government generally in saying that they didn't understand. Well, he first said governments can barely spell entrepreneur, let alone understand how to support them. And he said that when the government thinks about business, they tend to only think about London and the city. But actually, they really need to help people
2: invest in businesses as a whole by making it a lot easier. I think that kind of comes back to almost what he was saying about not romanticizing entrepreneurship. And I can see why we do it because we like the big sort of flashy success stories. But on the other hand, one of the dangers is that it almost feeds this narrative that anyone can succeed as long as you're innovative and brilliant enough. And in a way that gives the government a bit of a get out clause, sort of a bit of an excuse for government inaction. Obviously, there is a survival of the fittest element, and you could argue that the Elon Musks and geniuses of this world maybe are always destined to succeed, but then there's all of those who fall in the middle, and neglecting them harms UK business.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that if you make it about the person's individual characteristics then it does take the pressure off the government to provide the right infrastructure for businesses to succeed. His charge against the current political class is that they're very insulated and they have very little understanding of how business works and that that's led to kind of various policies that just haven't been very effective. For example, he criticises the government's enterprise zone strategy, which is described as an arbitrary approach that will inevitably fail to support thousands of British entrepreneurs who are creating high potential businesses from their kitchen tables. And I think in that he has a point, because if the government really is to help business owners, their criterion should surely be how good they are, not where they're based. Now, following on from our discussion on the last podcast, where we argue that management needs to be made aspirational again, is new research from the Chartered Management Institute, which shows that skilled managers
2: act as a reputational insurance policy for businesses. Antonia, give us the details of the research. So the CMI commissioned UGov to do some survey field work. I'm looking at the state of UK leadership. And they found that only 27% of workers assessed their manager as highly effective. 18%, on the other hand, said their manager was either somewhat or highly ineffective. What's more, half of workers who described their boss as ineffective plan to leave their company in the next year, and only a third, or 34%, feel motivated to do a good job. So the report was really aimed at kind of serving as a rallying cry to UK PLC to stop neglecting this critical issue, The Institute's CEO Anne Frank described it as a wake-up call for a low growth, low productivity and badly managed Britain to take management and leadership seriously. She also said that skilled managers should be seen as a reputational insurance policy in the sense that they will help prevent toxic behaviours. And that is something that was reflected in the findings. 81% of managers who had had formal management training reported feeling comfortable calling out bad behaviour compared to 73% of those who hadn't. So Management Matters was said at once, we're said again. And this is, of course, something that we've looked at in more detail in our, you've guessed it, Management Matters series. And on to our
1: interview, which is with Charles Lewington on this episode. Antonio, you did the interview. Do you want to tell us
2: who he is and what he said? So Charles Lewington is the founder and executive chairman of comms consultancy, Hanover Communications, and was previously John Major's press secretary in the 90s. In a wide-ranging conversation, we discussed the parallels between the worlds of business and politics, and how to prepare for a company sale process, something Charles has recent experience of, having sold Hanover in 2019 to Canadian holding company Avenir Global. He also detailed his principles for growth, including the strength of knowing what you don't know, and let MT in on some of the secrets to crisis comms. Great, thanks Antonia. That's it for this week,
1: and now on to the interview with Charles Lewington.
2: Welcome to the podcast, Charles. You're well known as the figurehead of Hanover Communications. But before we get to that, I'd like to rewind a bit. Could you tell me um, a little bit about the early years of your career?
0: So I started life as a journalist on local newspapers, writing about dog shows and golden weddings. Before things got a bit more exciting and then I came up to London about 10 years later and I became a political correspondent in Westminster between 88 and 94, which was a very turbulent time in British politics. Then I worked for John Major as his press secretary for three years up to 97. Then I set the business up.
2: So what prompted the shift from journalism to PR?
0: My journalism career had slightly run its course. I was, you know, an executive editor on a paper. I wasn't earning a huge amount of money. And I wanted to apply the skills that I'd learnt inside the political system and inside Downing Street to advise clients. Initially around sort of media relations and crisis communications, but the business then developed and expanded its remit as it grew.
2: And so obviously you mentioned that you were John Major's press secretary. Could you tell me a little bit about what that role was like and some of the biggest challenges that you faced during that time?
0: Well, working for a conservative government after nearly 17 years of power is quite a challenge, quite similar to the challenges that Rishi Sunak and his team are now facing. I think the big issues were the big debates in the Conservative Party at the time around, surprise, surprise, our continued membership of the European Union, Uh, and it was a deeply divided party. There was no discipline in the party whatsoever. There was a kind of rash of corruption scandals, personal misdemeanors, which just came thick and fast, all times of day and night. You found yourself having to handle some quite complex issues at at speed. So it was good learning.
2: I was sort of interested in kind of what's the difference between advising politicians and business leaders, because I suppose it's difficult to get everyone to kind of buy into the same line in politics where everyone's got their own individual agenda. But you also mentioned, I guess, that there's these crises springing up left, right and centre as well because of that sort of discipline element too.
0: Well, I think there are many parallels actually between politicians and business leaders. And the most important one is they're all human beings and they're all different human beings. So you get prime ministers who are arrogant, you get prime ministers who lack confidence, and it's the same in business. So the read across is much greater than I think business people would like to think. In in terms of getting everyone on message, it is much easier to get an organization or a management team or a cabinet on message if you're doing well. And so if you're up in the polls in politics or if your revenues are growing and your profits growing and your shareholders are happy in business, of course, everyone is going to be happy with the line because it's working. What then creates problems is when the poll slump or sales slump, and business leaders and politicians, in a way, face exactly the same challenges, which is how to galvanise, how to turn around, how to enthuse. <laughs> so there are more, many more read read acrosses than you might necessarily think.
2: How did you regard the election defeat in 1997? Um, d- did you have any regrets about the campaign? Sort of how pivotal. A role did you think that the comm strategy could have in the ultimate success or failure of it?
0: Well, the comm strategy was highly tactical. (laughs) And, you know, I spend my life now advising business leaders on, you know, how they rewire their organisation and how they, you know, they make sure that every move sits within a strategic envelope. Election campaigns are very fast moving, very, very bruising. You can uh, try your best to stick on message or work with the day's grid, but you're very often knocked off course. I think the actual defeat itself was a massive experience for me in terms of I had a team of about 40 come election night. They all needed to be managed. They all needed to be reassured. They needed to be told, to be perfectly frank, that you know they need to act gracefully in defeat because politics is a cyclical business and they'll be back in power in due course. <laughs>
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to kind of hear about the inner workings of that kind of, I imagine, after sort of all of that hard work, it's just such a sort of high tension situation. How do you think that our current government is doing on comms?
0: As well as it can do, really, I think the problem with a government that's been in power for, you know, 13 years, is that the country tends to stop listening. Certainly when we're going through a cost of living crisis and still trying to mop up after the effects of the pandemic, it is very hard to communicate if people have stopped listening, because basically the media has its own agenda, it only wants to write about the cock ups, it doesn't really want to write about the successes. And indeed, I have lots of similar conversations with business leaders who say, why is it whenever I say this or I try that, you know, all the media coverage is negative. I feel very sorry for them, actually, but I think they're doing a pretty good job.
2: And what about Rishi Sunak, I guess, on a more specific level in terms of managing his own reputation? Would you say a similar thing?
0: I think Rishi Sunak is doing a pretty good job with his reputation. His frustration is that he thinks that hard work is the solution to everything. And, of course, it's not always the solution to everything. It's about messaging. It's about picking on wedge issues to run with. It's about taking more of a campaigning stance on certain matters. And he is, I think, fallaciously of the view that all he has to do is to work hard and to solve problems and that somehow things will come round. In terms of his personal reputation, I think he's he's a good talker. He's got a vision for the country.
2: How has politics changed, in your view, in the intervening period between, I guess it was 1997 when you... Left that position, for example, perhaps in terms of the rhetoric or kind of degrees of polarization, or indeed any changes for the better as well.
0: Well, you've mentioned the biggest change, and that's polarization driven by you know media cycles, social media, resentment over lack of economic growth, societal problems, immigration. And there was a a high degree of tolerance around a lot of these issues back in the 90s when I was in politics. That is an additional complexity for political leaders to have to contend with. The fundamental problem or the fundamental difference between then and now was that a bad year of economic growth in the 90s was maybe 3%. This year, a bad year of economic growth is 0%. And if real incomes are not growing, then it causes a lot more resentment on the part of the electorate which is makes it harder to manage. And of course, that resentment builds up against one party and another party takes over and that resentment will build up very quickly as well.
2: What would you have done if you were Liz Truss's communications director?
0: Oh, I wouldn't have been Liz Truss's communications director.
2: Okay, that's a short and sweet answer. So could you tell me a bit about your time running Hanover then? So you founded the company in 1998, I believe. How did you set about to grow the business?
0: I suppose three principles. One is putting the customer first, and, and I know every business leader says that. But in the case of a consultancy, as with a law firm or a firm of accountants, you've got to recognize that a client is paying quite a lot of money for a high-end service. So you have to understand... in complex detail what it is the client wants in terms of the balance between strategic advice and very good account director management and very very bright researchers so that the whole experience for them is a good one and then you have to constantly monitor the service quality by setting up feedback loops through customer satisfaction so that you can always renew learn move forward i think that's the first thing the second thing is Someone said to me a long time ago that one of my strengths is I I know what I don't know. And I've applied that to the business strategy of the business. So we set out from the outset to work in a fairly limited number of sectors. It's very easy when you set up a consultancy to say, oh, yes, I could do this or I could do that. But actually, I decided there are some key sectors that I wanted to work in. And I thought I would leave the other sectors to other people. So actually, over the years, we have majored on what we call now our eight value verticals, of which healthcare is a substantial part of the business. It represents 40% of revenues. So I think that's worked. And then the other thing, and I wasn't really able to do this until about 10 or 12 years, was to diversify geographically. And we set up in 2010, we set up in Brussels, then we set up in Dublin, and we set up in the Middle East. And of course, now, those are parts of the world that are growing much faster than we are. And we are also able to cross sell uh, services to clients across what we call the EMEA region. And that works very well for us. And an overlay on that is constant sort of service innovation in terms of creative services or digital or strategy and insights. So all the way along, we are offering more and more services to existing clients who remain loyal.
2: And you decided to sell the business a few years ago. What advice would you have for other business leaders who are either going through the same process or potentially looking to sell their company?
0: Know your value. I think there are a lot of people who want to sell themselves in the run-up, either because they are, you know, they're told that that is the likely value of the business. Secondly, you have to start your internal sale process about five years before sale, because you have to right size the business, you have to make sure that you're not carrying people in the run up to sale. You obviously need to make sure that you maximize your profitability ahead of sale, but you also need to have a clear idea of who it is you want to sell to and why, and then put around you a very, very good set of advisors.
2: How long before the actual sale went through did you start Thinking about the process in those terms, of, was it five, ten years, or was it always in the back of your head? No, it was about it was
0: about five years. If you think through the calculation, Antonio, if you have an idea of what your value is, in order to get to that value, then you have to have achieved a certain level of of EBIT that, when when multiplied by the multiplier that a buyer will give you, reaches your value. So if you think you're worth X million, then you've got to make sure that your EBIT is achieving, I don't know, 18 or 90% of revenue in good time, so that you're not disappointed with the price that's eventually given you.
2: And I guess it's been coming up to 25 years since Hanover was founded. How do you think that the job of the comms industry has changed during that period? So for example, what kind of impact has the increasingly fractured nature of the media landscape had on the challenge of delivering a consistent message?
0: Speed is the obvious difference. So to go back to the 90s, the media cycle was at its fastest about four hours. And that was driven by the timings of the broadcast news bulletins. Nowadays, it's a matter of seconds, which puts a very, very high premium on good quality monitoring, responsiveness, working very, very closely with plants to ensure that they move as fast as you want them to do. And even when you're dealing with newspapers, they have a digital-first approach. So, you know, you're dealing with the results first thing in the morning. The business teams on newspapers will be wanting to write digital versions of the story. By 10 o'clock, they'll want to do a piece of digital analysis by one o'clock or a piece of analysis on digital platforms by one o'clock and then it's only till mid-afternoon they work out there's anything left in the story that appears in the paper the following day so all that has changed fundamentally and there used to be a very leisurely approach that as this took to results day which was a breakfast a market announcement you know the one-to-one briefings between the chief executive and certainly certain key journalists and that's all been truncated to give you a business example
2: sort of similarly, but with social media, I guess that means that your clients can communicate directly with their audience, whoever that is, which probably could be for the better or worse, depending on the situation.
0: Well, it depends whether, you know, whether they're good at communicating with journalists or key stakeholders on social media. I mean, there are, if you take Elon Musk, for the sake of example, I mean, hardly a day goes by without some kind of highly random piece of online communication. Uh, you know, Leary. I mean, there are a lot of them who who reach for a social media platform before they've even talked to their PR department.
2: Obviously, a lot depends on the nuances of the specific situation. But are there any mistakes that you see repeated time and time again in crisis comms? Because I understand that's an area that you specialise in.
0: Yeah, two or three. I think the first is that lawyers have their place round a crisis communications table, but it's only a place And if you let lawyers dictate the pace with which you do things, you don't get your message out quickly enough sometimes. And I've spent a lot of time working alongside some very, very good lawyers, and it's a pleasure to work with those who really understand our discipline, just as I hope it's a professional experience for them to know that I understand how lawyers work. But I think that relationship is critical, and there have been some corporate catastrophes where lawyers have been too powerful around the crisis table. The second really important consideration is you've got to know your facts. And the number of times that, as in politics, really, corporate leaders have been caught out issuing one statement, only to subsequently discover they weren't in possession of the full facts. And I think we we saw that a bit with the NatWest Coot saga, where, you know, there were too many people shooting from the hip without having all the facts at their, their fingertips. So I think that's extremely important. And the third thing is that you have to have a very well tried and tested communications response plan. So in other words, there's a sort of common assumption on the part of journalists that the crisis hits, you know, the crisis guys are called in and they all sit around the table and they work out what the answer is. Well, actually, well-run businesses that are rewired in anticipation of managing crises are those that perform best. Everyone knows their role. Everyone's clear about what they have to do. The structures are clear. The hierarchies are clear. And that leads to a better management of the crisis.
2: The kind of crises that you're advising leaders on, have those changed over the last 25 years or are they fundamentally pretty similar?
0: I was reflecting with a colleague the other day about Bernard Looney, BP, who was forced to resign because of personal indiscretions. There was a previous chief executive of BP, a very, very smart man called called John Brown, different set of circumstances. He ultimately had to fall on his sword. So in a way, when the personal life bumps into business leadership, that is not new. But there is more of it around because there are more whistleblowers. Women feel more empowered to make complaints about historic bad behavior. The media will more readily publish allegations because of the way that libel laws changed over the years. Uh, You know, so that is one example of where these things pop up quite a bit but the other thing is also freedom of information
2: so could you expand a little bit on how that kind of plays out
0: let's go back to nat west coots how was it that nigel farage found out that there was this dossier on him he made what's known as a dsar day subject access request into the business on any information from him and out it all came and i found it extraordinary really that the customer was able to get hold of this information without the chief executive of NatWest knowing about it so i know that dsars are a feature of gdpr legislation they're not a feature of freedom of information but i put it all in the general freedom of information bucket
2: what lessons would you say that you've learned about leadership specifically from advising politicians and senior business leaders on comms i guess you kind of will see mistakes that others have made in successes, and what kind of pictures that built up for you?
0: Well, you know, my leadership principles I touched on one of them earlier on, and that's uh, make sure your customer is front and center. So, I suppose if you were to kind of relate that to politics, you know, you must put the voter front of center and never forget that they put you there in the first place. But more generally, and I think politicians are not very good at doing this because of the nature of the system, I'm a big believer in the empowerment, particularly the next management level down in the business, because it helps people grow intellectually, it gives them greater career opportunities. They become better consultants, the more that they are better managers of their own business. And I've also taken the view that it's okay to make mistakes, because actually, that's how you learn. And I've learned a lot over the years making mistakes. That's not to say we have a a no blame culture, which I think is a slightly overused expression but it's okay to make mistakes and in a way it's far better that people make mistakes earlier on in their career that can then be corrected and adjusted because they won't make them again so those are sort of three of my personal leadership principles the other thing I just want to say is that founders and majority shareholders and chief executives are in a unique position and I don't know I think you've interviewed some in similar positions previously because If you exercise leadership well within that envelope, it's an extremely powerful combination. If you think about it, because your majority shareholding position, uh, it provides a sort of latitude for you, in a way, behave more benignly than might otherwise be the case. Because at the end of the day, everyone knows that can be no doubt as to who is the boss of the company. (laughs) Anyway, I just thought I'd drop that in.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. How would you sort of characterize your style of leadership? I mean, similar, but slightly different. Are you quite hands on? What's your sort of personal approach?
0: Well, you probably need to ask my management team as to whether <laughs> as to whether I'm hands on or not. I'm not that hands on, to be honest. I think most of my management team would say that I've given them all sorts of chances to do different things in the business and i'm very proud to have been able to do that indeed the business has been taken over by a very very old colleague of mine who is now the president managing director of the business and it gives me massive pleasure to see someone who i've worked with over many many years taking over the reins and dealing with the day-to-day challenges of the business and allowing me to think a bit more strategically so do i have a philosophy? Not necessarily, I'm not a sort of philosophical type of person, I've got a practical, let's sit down and solve this problem. We lose a bit of business, let's sit down and work out why we lost it to make sure we don't lose another piece of business. We have a big opportunity come in, how are we all going to work together to win this piece of business? So it's a good collegiate. We've established a collegiate approach internally in the business some of which is due to the structures and incentive systems that we put in place. But I think a fair part of it is down to my style.
2: And you mentioned that your executive chairman role, which you took on earlier this year, has kind of enabled you to spend more time thinking strategically. I understand that your earnout ends this year. What are your plans? Do you plan to stay with Hanover?
0: Yes, I definitely plan to stay with Hanover. The needs of the business have changed as we've grown. So, you know, some quick fundamentals... We've grown top line 50% over the last four years. We've grown profit or EBT by 18% combat over the four years. And we've expanded into all the new markets that I've talked about earlier on, and we've developed new service lines. So we have some really quite big clients for whom we're executing 12 to 15 different things for. And that has made the business much more complicated to run. And increasingly, I found that I... I didn't have the time to take the step back and to look at the market, to spend a bit more time looking at the competition, to analyse trends, both economic and political and in communications terms, and to help take a bit more of a helicopter view of what we might achieve over the next five years, rather than one that was focused very much on operations.
2: Okay, well, brilliant, Charles. Thank you so much. That was really interesting, and it feels like a good place to leave it. So thank you for coming on the podcast.
0: Not at all. Very nice to meet you, Antonio.
1: Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. Find us on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts.